New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Today, talking to Neil Creswell from Portana.io, which is a, a fascinating New Zealand startup uh, that's really grown from uh, a side hustle into, uh, I guess, a, a software uh, vendor with over 500,000 uh, users. So, uh, welcome along to the podcast, Neil. Thank you. And, and a side hustle is actually being generous, more like a, a side project. Wow, wow. Uh, well, yeah, really, really cool to have you here and to be able to uh, delve into a little, little bit of the story. And look, I, I, I love hearing the the backgrounds to New Zealand success stories to startups. Uh, there are always so many lessons to to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, hoping we'll get some some interesting uh, bits and bits so and pieces too. from you today. Um, I guess you know, first of all, for you. You're a Kiwi. Where did, where did where in the country did you grow up? On the North Shore, so Shore boy through and through, Westlake boys all the way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I spent some time living in Wellington, and then spent some time living overseas. So, seen seen some of the world. And so, where did the sort of interest? Where did you start getting drawn into the tech world and the business world? How did how did those things come about for you? I actually started in tech when I was 16, believe it or not. Uh, I was one of IBM New Zealand's youngest employees at 18. So I did, did my time at IBM, 13 plus years there, and uh, which really set me up to understanding the world of, of corporate IT and, and what was expected from a CIO and, and yeah, a, a, real, a real challenge. And then sort of, hey, I'm going to do my own thing and went out and joined two other business partners and started doing some virtualization and storage consulting and really just has, has grown from there. So I still think of myself as a young guy, even though you can see wrinkles. <laughs> but yep. So to get into a role at IBM as an 18-year-old, what do you think it was that opened uh, opened, the, opened that door? I was actually headhunted, believe it or not. I was working for a small company here called Tico Computers. Which I remember Tico. do, there you yeah. go, far yeah. out. So I actually was a service technician for them and one of the managers at IBM had a Tico computer and he bought it in for repair and he was so blown away with the way that I serviced and handled his requests that he made me uh, an offer on the spot to, to come in for an interview, I should say, and went in for an interview and it was pretty harsh um, and he got off with the job and thought, hey, this is pretty cool, why not? So it, I think... It was just more around really, really caring about the customer, making sure that they got what they what they expected. It was it was more from a customer perspective, what would I expect this thing to do, not from a supply perspective, what's the minimum I can do to, to get this customer out of the way. So it was that kind of different mentality. And where do you where do you think that that came from for you? Was that something in your upbringing? Oh, You've yeah, done to, other to be, jobs. To be fair, that is definitely my father. Uh, yeah. yeah, he he's an engineer as well, and and right from right from a young age had engineering philosophies drilled in. So I still consider myself now an engineer, and I always like to break things and fix things and build things and make things easier. So I think that was it, and never happy with just enough. Always have to it has to be has to be right. So, yeah. Right, that's a, that's a really good approach. So IBM, thirteen years. What was that? Uh, what was that journey? Inside IBM, what did that sort of look like coming on board as an eighteen-year-old? Clearly, you know when you when you stepped off the IBM uh, uh, ship, um, 
you know, you must have been through some some pretty interesting learnings and experiences there, uh, and some growth in terms of what you were what you were doing from beginning to end. Yeah, so I, I started out actually on the bench uh, because of my. So whilst I was at Tico and still at least at IBM, I was at night shift at um, Tech, so studying electronics degree. And so I was fixing, you know, you know, fix things these days, but fixing power supplies, fixing monitors, actually fixing computers, soldering things. So I started out on the bench, um, wasn't happy with that, really wanted to be more customer-facing, and so got myself a, a, a field service role out fixing fixing PCs. I remember being a young 20-year-old fixing the servers at the police stations and fixing mission-critical IT systems. And I remember the look on people's faces when this, this you know, fresh young 20-year-old rocks up to fix their mission-critical system. Um, my career at IBM was amazing. I, I won a, lo- a lot of awards at IBM, CEO awards. Um, just, again, just a, a drive for, for perfection and really focusing on the customer. So progressed quite quickly through an IBM career and ended up uh, being quite pivotal in IBM New Zealand's VMware and storage practice and consulting that and did the very first VMware deployment in the country and most of those, that's what took me to Wellington. Right, right. And when you when you sort of look back at that, what were the things that stood out about IBM's environment? Because for you to flourish like that, it's not it's not all on the individual. It's also creating that environment where uh, people can move through the organisation. And uh, I've had it before. Talk to uh, talk to people in a big organisation, and they're tearing their hair out because they they can't. You know, they want to get um, the organisation wants to keep them in a particular role for you know an extended period of time. They're ready to go on and do the next thing, and the organisation says, "Oh no, you've got to do your time and in, in doing this or or that." And uh, there's truth to that. Yeah. There's truth, but yeah. you just need to make them aware that there's there's more value for them if you move. So move move up to a different a different role inside them, um, but the the main thing I think was it was the management structure around it. They they really encourage you to have a five and ten year plan. So it, it wasn't what are your KPIs for this year? What are your KPIs for next year? What's what's your what's your desires for next year? What do you, where do you want to be in five ten years time? And really making you think as a person, what do I want to do with myself? Where do I want to be? And and then they said, okay, well now let's let's put in place a program to help you get there. And so there was training and, and leadership courses and all these other things to, to get you to towards your five and 10-year plan because they said as long as, our, as, long, as long as your five and 10-year plan aligns with what IBM can do for you, we'll, we'll take you on that journey. And that was amazing. So I, I did all sorts of leadership and, and mentoring training and you know, IBM like to breed leaders, not managers. Um, so they, they, they take you on that journey. That's brilliant. That's great. Yeah, it's it's interesting when I you know look back at varying people I've interacted with you know across the sector, you know a pretty pretty you know solid solid share that have come you know come through IBM. Maybe not so much in in recent times, but uh, yeah, when when I when I look back for the, those of us who are a little bit older, uh, IBM uh, you know certainly you know, played played a, a really I think a really important role in in the development of a lot of. A lot of people within the sector here in mm. New Zealand. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, I, it, it's quite often now I go and, and I see people who I know as ex IBM are in, in you know, pretty big leadership positions across the IT sector in New Zealand. And it's like that's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember yeah. when I was living up in Singapore, I bumped into someone in the lobby of a building who used to be the IBM um, manager in Wellington. It's like, oh, fancy seeing you here. So you just never know. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you got to the, that sort of end end of your uh, your tenure with with IBM. 
what was uh, what did that next phase uh, look like, and you know, it ultimately took you overseas. Well, we first started out. So I, I joined uh, VIFX, if you've heard of them, um, with Jeff Olaf and Derek Leach, and we said, well, let's go and build this this really amazing you know, virtualization and storage practice. You know, that was my technical background, and the three of us said, well, let's go and do something unique. Let's actually build something that is really customer focused and help bring this at that stage really emerging technology to market. How do we how do we help the New Zealand market get the best out of virtualization and storage? And you know, we we as a company did really well. We got onto the Deloitte's fastest fifty. You know, we became very successful in virtualizing you know, enterprise New Zealand. And then decided, hey, well, let's actually expand. And you know, we had the opportunity to go into Singapore and do the same thing up in Singapore, and so that's what took me up there. Yep, so uh, with starting that, you were one of three sort of founders and investors. How did, how did that sort of thing? Yeah, one, one of three, and yeah. that, that grew. I think at our largest, we had 50 staff. Um, at that stage, I was already up in Singapore, so uh, you know, the, the, the New Zealand piece there is a little bit grey for me, but uh, in Singapore, we, we grew quite quickly as well. Mm. Um, yeah, we, we were basically a partner of VMware up in Singapore, and you know, I, I was personally traveling around Asia uh, in some places. I was in four countries in the same day, flying in, doing a consulting gig and flying to the next country, consulting gig and fly and fly, fly. So you know, got my eyes opened to very large scale and built quite good relationships with some you know, really highfalutin CIOs and you know, CTOs and CISOs through that process. And I think that's what began my, my change to at least my mindset changed to say, well, at really large enterprise scale, what is actually what, what's expected? Yeah, what, yeah. What does a what does a CIO actually expect this thing to do before them to adopt this tech? And when you look back now, where there's some um, some real sort of you know breakthroughs during that time in terms of whether it was challenges that helped you, you know, helped you learn. I mean. Hitting four countries in one day, uh, that doesn't sound like you were on a sort of a, a relaxed gig at all. Um, oh, no. you, must have, you must have been under a fair degree of pressure, uh, oh. you know, being pushed into, into that, those sort of scenarios. And, uh, yeah, when you talk about these, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, re- really important uh, leaders within the, the, the tech world, mm. you know, they'd be very, very reliant on their technology. So, uh, you know, you couldn't be dumping stuff on them that uh, would break. Or if you did, then uh, there'd be a lot of pressure to get that fixed pretty quickly. Yeah, one of the things I learnt, and uh, and this absolutely has carried through to Portana, is so often you get these really high flying consultants coming in and working with the CIO to develop a perfect solution for their needs. So you you do all these these consulting workshops. Okay, what are your needs? What what, what are your constraints? And and you build these these really amazing solutions, and they're, and they're beautiful solutions for them, perfect solutions. They implement those solutions. A month later, you're starting to get SOS phone calls from them saying, "Hey, we, you know, our, our guys are really struggling to deal with this thing. You know, how how do we actually how do we use these tools that you provided us? We we don't understand. You know, our guys, you know, kind of didn't really focus in, in the skills the, the, the skills transfer session. We're kind of lost. Can you come back? And so you end up in this cycle where you're having to go back and forward and back and forward back and forward. And that really that really taught me some some lessons that says you really need to make sure that the tools that the, the organisations are left with to run the platform, those tools need to be at a, at, a, at a level and at a language that their staff can understand. If the tool is a perfect tool, but it's beyond the comprehension of the staff, you may as well not have any tools at all. Well, that becomes pretty imperfect, doesn't it? It does. Right? And, and I guess this is one of the 
one of the realities of uh, in, in business and the technology that things that sort of look perfect, yeah, they, they, mm. they, there's there's always uh, aspects that are that are imperfect to you know whatever whatever degree, and you never really find that absolutely perfect uh, yeah uh, perfect solution to you. And so I, I, I had these these experiences in the back of my mind dealing with CIOs and, and what they need. I had experiences with consulting and and solutions that were were hurting post go live because of the complexity of the of the technology. And the, these things are just are just learnings. Just they're just they're just in my brain locked away. Yeah, you know, at that point nothing. And then you know a few years later I got exposed to two containers or to Docker technology and thought, man, this thing is amazing. This is an amazing technology. This is going to change the world. And for those that don't know what containers are, they're, they are a, a game-changing piece of tech that make applications portable. You can run applications anywhere in isolation and really you know, safe, secure, and scalable. And I thought, so this, this technology is going to change the world. Absolutely, this is the way applications are going to be deployed in the future. But my goodness, it's complicated. And whilst there were some tools that helped you get started, there were really no tools for ongoing use so how does how do how do normal regular users inside an IT department use this tech? Unless you are an IT ninja and you spent forever learning this tech, you really were going to struggle. And so I, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I, I can't do this. I, I I've got this this knowledge in my brain that says a perfect solution is imperfect if no one can use it. The CIO wants the this high degree of governance control. This tech is all about freedom and no controls and complexity there's no way that's going to enter mainstream and that's that's what was really the the, the first catalyst for how, how can I create a portal to make this tech easy to use easier to to manage control deploy self-serve all that kind of stuff so that's what you got to work on as your as your side uh, interest side interest that was it really was <laughs> you know I at, at this stage, I was living in Indonesia, and I was running a cloud service provider, and I wanted to offer containers as a service. And I, I delivered that as again a perfect solution. Here is here is Docker as a service. Here is your API endpoint because that's what we were told we needed to do. And the market's like, what is this? How do I engage with this thing? So then back to my learnings. Well, that's right. And unless I provide a means for people to engage with this thing, with this thing at a level they understand, they won't know how to use it. And so had Portainer written, and yeah, thankfully I bumped into my now co-founder Anthony Penner. Bumped into him. He's he's a guy from France. Was over here on a working holiday, and yeah, we we met up at a at a Docker um, yeah, meetup actually, and and started talking. And said, "Hey, I've got this great idea. What do you think?" And he says, "Well, I, I know how to, how to how to cut code. Let's have a go." And so started writing this thing, and yeah, it just it just became really successful. You know, pe- people really liked it within. Within six months of us making it available, we had we had over a million downloads of the thing, and that was without even trying. Wow! Yeah, that's uh, that's impressive. Now, starting something like this, you know, I remember I've I've uh, you know have varying bits of advice around choosing business partners, but I I remember quite early on. Um, I don't even know whether it, this was a, a, a particular period where I was. Really looking or thinking that much about being in business my, myself, um, so I had some experiences in the, the technology sector that you know, put put me off the idea of uh, running a business. Which is, you know, my younger years, I thought I would, you know, my teenage years, I thought, you know, probably mid teens, I thought, yep, that's sort of part of what I'm going to do. But one of the bits of advice was to put 
at least as much effort into selecting a business partner as you would with uh, you know finding someone to marry. Yep. Um, how did the, how did that sort of piece play out for you? It sort of sounded like you stumbled across somebody, but you 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 must have really clicked and really felt some uh, some confidence there, or was it just something that over time that confidence uh, you know built up? I guess you didn't have a maybe didn't have a big view initially around uh, what Portana might be in the, in the longer term. I had, I had no idea what, what it was going to become, to be, <laughs> yeah, okay. to be fair. Uh, at the time, um, just my engagement with Anthony at that, at that time, you know, it was like he, he, he's, he was a really smart young guy, really, yeah. really smart young guy. And I'm like, man, this, this, guy, this guy gets what I'm talking about. He understands this tech, understands my vision to make it simpler and clearer. And I never had to explain anything to the guy. He just kind of understood what I was trying to do. And we would, would iterate ideas and, and he'd just go and build this amazing product. And so, you know, I, I kept saying he's the guy that made me look, look, look awesome. You know, I had these ideas, what I wanted to do. I had no, no ability technically to write the thing, yet just through discussions, he was able to pick this up and create this amazing product for me. Um, and still to this day, you know, he's, he's the guy I lean on in regards to making this thing amazing. Wow, so it's, uh, it, it just worked, it worked out. It just worked out, yeah. yeah. I, I, I always say when it, when it comes to choosing business partners, you need to make sure that each has, the, has your own unique strength. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's like a stool. If, if you take away a leg of the stool, the stool falls over. So you, you want to make sure that you each complement each other with, with your own you know, bespoke piece of, of, of expertise. And you know, with, with me, you know, Jeff and Derek in the original VFX, that was us. We, we were a three-legged stool. And with Anthony, it was the same. Yeah, you know, he he was strong in one area, and I, and I wasn't, and I was strong in an area, and he wasn't. So again, you are complemented. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's really good. And so you got the uh, the the initial version of Portana uh, out there, open source, and loads of people were downloading it. When did you realise that this uh, needed to be something you you know take pretty seriously and? Uh, you know, should be should be a really uh, mm. something you should be you know putting a hundred percent of your time into. Well, first of all, I by the way, I had no idea what open source meant. It was just it was just a cool thing. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was making products and making them open source, and I had no idea what that meant, what that entailed. So you just said yes, let's do that. It's a great idea. Let's do that. It's yeah. open source. That's cool. Let's do that. Uh, yeah, that has actually been one of the key, uh, I think, points of success for us because that let us get the product to a really wide audience. Without any real marketing, and you know, one of the key things, if you have an open source product and you have you have founders or people in the company who love and respect the community and want to build the community, you naturally engage with the community, and the community feeds off that, and the community just grows and grows and grows. And in the early days, you know, as as we were learning about the technology and making Portana better, we were feeding back that knowledge to the community. You know, this is this is what we're learning. This is some of the weaknesses or some of the shortcomings in the tech. Or th- these are workarounds, and we're feeding this back. and And the community liked that, and so the community grew as people gravitated to us to learn more information. And so it just kept it kept self self propagating, self increasing, and and that that really is what got us this huge groundswell of users to begin with. Just feedback, 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 and it was really only two years ago when, when we said, "Hey, man, this thing is actually starting to to really snowball." Maybe just maybe there's actually a way to to, to, to commercialise this, and there's been quite a few success stories of people who have commercialised open source software. Uh, it's not, it's not easy uh, at all. The market 
or the open source market is a bit fickle. Uh, people sometimes associate open source equals equals free as in no money as opposed to free as in freedom. So there, you, you're, you're constantly fighting against this thing, but it's open source. Why should I pay for it? So you've, you, you've, you're always pushing against that that barrier. And you know, more and more people are, are now accepting that open source doesn't necessarily mean free. There is still a huge element of that. But you know, two years ago was definitely that point where we said, let's, let's see what we can make of this thing. And it's been pretty pretty successful so far. Yeah, so having having this product effectively that was available, you know, open source for free, mm-hmm. what was your thinking in terms of how you could take it from that to, uh, you know, being something that was going to pay for a, you to keep putting time into it and, and um, you know, be able to fund a, a establishing a really, you know, solid business? How did you decide to, you know, how you draw those lines and, and differentiate the what's your community product, which is free, uh, from your commercial offering? Well, thankfully, we're not the first to do this, so we're not we're not pioneering this. We were able to follow the the, the leaders of this, and yeah, MongoDB is is one that we've we've looked at before. There's lots of others um, who we can look at for inspiration and say, well, how did they commercialize this? And there's a lot of open source companies who say we will always only ever have an open source version and the way that we commercialize that is through building a support business. That works well in the first year. The second year, very hard to actually retain customers. So, you know, if you give them an amazing service, the second year, why would they renew? So we didn't. We, we know we didn't want to be a support business, support only. So we wanted to do something different. And then we said, okay, well, so if you're not a support business, you then have to have an open source and a premium version of your product. So, yep, we're going to go that that way. And so then we said, well, how do you do that? Do we have the open source version and then plugins? And so we tried this thing called extensions where you could take pieces of proprietary code and plug it into the open source version. And that was pretty successful. But people were saying that we were we were polluting the open source, the, the, the true virtues of open source. And so we said, okay, well, let's not do that again. Let's actually have a true proprietary version and the open source version, and they are different. And so that's where we are today. We've got this proprietary version, Portainer Business, and we've got the Portainer CE. Portainer Business is materially the same as Portainer CE. It's 90% the same. But we've got some you know, bespoke functionality specifically for commercial users. And that's that's kind of the commercial model we went after and said, well, let's let's go after that approach. Let's now focus on just just converting a small subset of our entire user base to pay for this, for this, this commercial edition. And really that is what a lot of these now industry giants in the open source space have done and we're like well let's just follow that lead yeah it makes it makes a lot of sense and so when you're you're looking at your uh, I guess your user base and working mm-hmm. working out how to uh, how to do that was that hard to draw the lines around what you know what you would charge and what the difference would be in functionality what we charge yes and I would say that's a discussion that will never end. Uh, are we charging too much? Are we charging too little? Uh, if you ask 100 customers, half of them will say it's too cheap, half of them will say it's too expensive. Uh, so that's something that you will constantly refine and refine and refine. Um, in regards to what features go where, uh, we've tried to be as transparent as possible. You know, we, you have to, if you're an open source company, you have to be open as well. So we're, we're very transparent and we said the, the community edition is more of a general purpose product. It has features in there for everybody. doesn't matter if you're a home hobbyist or you're an enterprise in the community edition you have all the features so sometimes a home hobbyist gets a bit frustrated because there's features really targeted for a business and a business is a bit frustrated because there's features for a hobbyist 
So we said, okay, well, for Portana Business, we'll refine it and make it specifically optimized for businesses. So we'll take away some of the stuff that's for a hobbyist and we can now add features specifically for enterprises without really annoying our open source user base. And that was really the that point there. And we said, well, you're not, we're not going to take any features away from the, from the open source version. We're not going to feature retard the open, the open source version in any way. We'll just have specific commercial features over here in the business edition. And that, that's made it quite clean. Yeah. And bringing people on board, obviously there's a point where it had to be, um, you know, more than just the two of you. Yeah, it's happened quite quickly, actually. We we were two, then we were five. We were five for quite some time until we did our first uh, fundraise. And then we went from, from five to today, 30. Um, and hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be 50. So it's pretty radical. Uh, when you hire that many people and... Uh, you can't compromise quality. The hiring process is quite rigid. Um, your ability to take risks on people is somewhat diminished. Um, and so we we have relatively strict hiring processes we go through. Uh, that we really want them to understand our tech and also the programming languages we use. Uh, if they don't, we don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to upskill people. So we, we really need to hit, hit the ground running. So we, we're hiring confidence as we go. Uh, in a way, that's one of the positives to come from a very negative thing called COVID. Um, there was a lot of talent came into New Zealand, people either coming home or seeking a safe haven, um, and we've been able to hire some amazing, amazing skilled people into the business. And I, I, it's fair to say, without COVID, would those people have come back to New Zealand? I doubt it. Um, so we've we've got an amazing team right now of very talented people. So, yeah. And sort of looking at the longer term, do you think you you will need to continue hiring on the same basis? Which, you know, once once COVID's over, may um, you know push you away from hiring locally, or do you think you'll be able to, you know, bring in and train up more people uh, locally? I guess what's your mix at the moment of people that are inside New Zealand versus anywhere else? Uh, we have twenty three in New Zealand, so the vast majority in New Zealand. Uh, so. I think moving forward, um, we would probably be hiring in a lot more graduates. Uh, in fact, some of some of the better hires have been have been graduates who have come in with a really strong desire to to learn and grow and, and come on the journey with us. And so they've been amazing. So I'd probably do more of that, um, and then have, still have excellence at the top, and then graduates coming in and, and training them up. Um, if you have excellent people training graduates, guess what? Those graduates become excellent people. Absolutely. So I I don't think I'd ever hire mediocre. Would hire you know, juniors with a massive desire to learn and really, really good people who who want to teach. What other challenges have you had, particularly over you know this this um, past couple you know couple of years or so, moving from getting started to now where you've got to spend time out fundraising and you know, doing other things that um, you know often often hear from founders and startups around there. Their frustration that they're having to spend, you know, so much time away from actually doing the the things that they enjoy, yep. uh, trying to trying to raise um, funding. Because you've what what are the funding rounds that you've done uh, so far? So we we did a bridge to Series A. So obviously we we were we were self funded and bootstrapped for most of the journey. It was only mid last year where we said, well, actually let's try and make something really big out of this thing, and so let's go get some funding. So we did bridge to Series A, and we just concluded our Series A 
which went live last night, or the press release went live last night. So those those are the two funding rounds. Um, so the the challenges they're actually being time zone related. You know, we we we're in the middle of nowhere here, and our users are not here, and so we're quite often doing product you know, product demonstrations or support calls or just engaging with our with our community who are in inverse time zones. That makes it quite challenging. Yeah, you know, when it started out as a side hustle, it was great because I could I could get up early and spend a couple of hours in the morning and do a couple of hours at night, helping the community. Now it's full time. If the more people you got in our time zone, and our users are not in our time zone, it makes it quite challenging. So definitely time zone and and not being able to get on a plane and go and meet our community um, again back before COVID, you know, pre we were we'd attend as many meetups as we could. We'd present at meetups. We'd build. We'd build the network. You know, Anthony was flying around Europe, attending all the meetups. He had spent. He'd like to be this week. He was in Scotland. The next week is in Germany. He was flying around, attending all the meetups, pitching Portana, helping with brand awareness. We can't do that now, and so we we started doing a lot of virtual meetups. But then now a lot of people have got Zoom fatigue, and they just can't be bothered attending virtual meetups. So. That's that's been quite challenging, and the moment that we get our jabs and we can get out of here, we'll be back on the meetup trail, attending conferences, face to face, presenting what this is what the thing does. That's that's the best way to market it. So conferences absolutely key for you. It is for brand awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Are there are there any other things that are that are that have worked well for you from um, that marketing perspective and and um, you know getting Portainer out there? Interesting enough, with social media, you know this this horrible thing called influencers. You know they they are genuinely influential. Now there are those influencers who you give product and they they basically rave about the product, and there are those influencers who genuinely love the product and talk about it a lot. We're thankful to have the second. So we have a, a really large community who love the product and are vocal about it, and so we help empower those people. So we we bring those people close in, and and we. We make them available to talk to me, ask me any questions they like, and give them early early insight. And so let them let them go and write blogs and create video and do whatever content to promote their own brand, but at the same time promoting our brand too. So that that worked really well for us, and still works well for us today. So we have our ambassador program, we have our community leader program, and anyone who genuinely shows a natural interest in the product, we help empower them to go and create content on our behalf. And that just keeps propagating, propagating, propagating. Mm. And really, the only the only challenge I'd say was with us being open source, um, at least in the in the early stages before our current investors getting funding for an open source business from New Zealand was quite challenging. Um, I don't think there are many open source businesses in New Zealand, and so a lot of the New Zealand investors initially that we spoke to didn't couldn't really get their head around it. Um, we were quite quite lucky to come across Movac and Amplify and and K1W1 who actually understood. Open source and how to make, how to make money from it. You know, before that we had some real real challenges. When it's not IP that you own and therefore IP is an asset that they can use as a guarantee for their investment, they struggled. So you know, they, it was really good to get onto some investors who genuinely understood the potential of open source businesses and, and help us grow. That's great. Um, and so, how hard was it to do that uh, that first um, funding round? Well. The amount of no's we had was astronomical. I was actually starting to doubt myself, saying, "Have have I, have I really made a product here that no one wants?" You know, when you when you when you hear that many no's, this this thing's never going to succeed. It's never going to succeed. No, no one will invest in you. This, you, sh- you should sell it now for a dollar and get out of it. And it was like, "Whoa, what a really?" 
Yeah, it's quite. Um, and who who were you who were you pitching who were you pitching to? Was this just New Zealand no, no. Or primarily? No, or? Not not New Zealand. It was we we were pitching to anybody who would actually listen to us. To be honest, um, initially, and so it, it became quite uh, quite overwhelming. And it was only once we started getting into the investors who truly saw what we were doing, and they're like, "Man, we get this. We really get this." And it was like, "Okay, cool. Your confidence starts to bubble back up again." You're like, "Oh yeah, let's go." But yeah, there were some times where I'm thinking, "Whoa, man, what have we done?" So how did how did you bring yourself through that? Because I'm I'm absolutely sure there are some people that get to that point and they're out, right? Advisors. They, they just they just check out. Advisors, advisors. We, we we got advisors to help us through the process, and those advisors have said, for every yes, you you get a hundred no's. You just have to grin through the hundred no's to get that one yes. And so we 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 just said, okay, fine. These people aren't going to get what we do. It's going to be normal to get these no's. You know, the no's are not on us. It, you, you just get 100 no's for every one yes. So let's go. We, we want to get six yeses. Let's go get 600 no's out of the way as soon as we can. <laughs> and, it's like, and, and once once you get that in your mind, this isn't personal. These guys just don't necessarily understand what we're doing or it's not right for them right now. Then it's okay. It's, it's nothing personal. They don't necessarily understand your product to, to say it's going to fail. So Yeah. And how did you get your pitch right? Because that's an important part, right? If your pitch isn't isn't right, then, you know, you'll get 606 no's, um, but, you know, potentially. Um, so that, that piece becomes pretty pretty important. Asking for feedback? Yeah. So when, whenever they said no, we, we asked why. Was there, was there something you didn't understand? Was there an area of the pitch that we could have made more clear? Was it too technical? Was it not technical enough? Do we need to give you more information around this particular you know, around our sales strategy or our revenue forecasts or what is it? So we, we learnt a lot by just asking why why no and improving. And again, back to these advisors who, who coached us on these 100 no's, they, you know, these guys are, are veterans of the industry. They understand what works and said this is really how your pitch deck should look. This is how you should pitch it. You know, you, you've really got for an hour long, you've really got 15 minutes of absolute attention Get you get most of your matches across in the first fifteen minutes, and then you've got lesser attention. And then so you know they basically just told us this is how you pitch. So you know pitch coaching, and went through those and and refine, refine, refine. We didn't just write the pitch once. They write this is it. Let's go give it. Every pitch was slightly different, slightly better. Sometimes it was slightly worse, and we're like, oh, that didn't work, and we'll try again. Okay, the next one was better. So we're we're pretty pretty you know, confident now. Let's let's say. And were you also? Uh Looking for local funding from the likes of Callahan and and so on, or were you you really just looking for that um, venture capital uh, funding? We never actually explored Callahan, uh, only because we just never did. So yeah. it's not to say we we would ever try and be declined. We just never tried. Um, I should try now though. <laughs> and getting the right advisors. How how did I mean, it sounds like you got some good you got some good advice because you got the right results? Mm-hmm. How did that come about? How did you f- find um, the advisors? Uh, so they came from people in our network, so people who we already knew had successful careers, either governing large organisations or had governed organisations in the past, and were now freelance advisors, uh, or or people who would come across in our dealings uh, who. We actually looked up to and respected in, in our meeting and said, "Wow, you know, this this person's really smart. We could we could learn a lot from them. How do we bring them on board?" So yeah, it was it was really just 
just FaceTime with these people, understanding their, their unique value prop and understanding their backgrounds and what made them successful in their own professional lives and why can they help us on the journey. And again, that, that was like, like finding a business partner. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like you did very well on that front. I'll, I'll you know, often hear stories of uh, just basically really poor, poor advice, right? And oh, yeah. uh, um, so getting, getting that piece right, yeah, you really got a, a huge benefit from networks and and so on. You've drawn from over time, but you must have been you know fairly astute in terms of what you were what you were looking for too. Well, so Jeff, Olaf, and I, so we we were basically running this whole you know, fundraising phase, right? And so we we kind of knew what we what we wanted to get across in regards to a message. And so the advisors would say, you know, do this, do this, do this, and we we're like, okay, cool. We, we, we know the message we want, so how does that advice fit in? So we didn't just take the advice carte blanche. It was like we, we put it through our own filters first and said, okay, well, what are we, we going to do here? How is this thing going to – how will this help us tell the story? And so some of the advice was like, look, if, if we do that, neither of us can pitch this because it's not our story anymore. So, sure. so we, had, we had to put it through that filter and, and that lens to say, okay, well, we need to be confident pitching this freehand. You know, I, can't, I can't read a PowerPoint. Deck when you're pitching, pitching's, yep. got, pitching's got to come from the heart. Yeah. So unless, unless this is my story refined, it isn't going to work. So so we, we had these advisors giving us information, but we yeah we put it through our filter. Yeah. So you did that um, initial raise uh, 2020. What did you raise that uh, on that occasion? 1.2 US. Yeah. And then you've just raised another six million US. Yep. And the 1.2 was to basically prove that we could actually get a commercial version out the door uh, that the market would like a commercial version and that we could start getting initial traction on that commercial version and that that was that was the key to the second the second funding so you know thankfully we, we got the commercial version out the door on time on schedule um, and it's it's been pretty pretty well accepted uh, it's it's fair to say it was an MVP commercial version so you know that's obviously what you can do and now we've got ourselves a really strict uh, product roadmap for this year and onwards to say this is what we're going to do to really make this thing valuable and make people want to buy it. Just for some listeners that aren't familiar, describe uh, MVP from your perspective, what you what you consider the, an, an MVP to be for, um, for Portana. Something that is actually uniquely valuable in its own right, but is not necessarily fully featured. So... I could have I could have added twenty features that were all pretty rubbish. That's not an MVP in my in my view. I'd much rather do two or, fe- two, you know, two or three features that are amazing, so the customers can say, "Wow, this I, I can see what these guys are trying to do here." So an MVP for most people is do everything, you know, half cocked. That's a bad idea. Yeah, you know, I'd much rather for me anyway. It's it's prove that you can do this amazing thing, build this amazing product by choosing two or three pieces of functionality and execute on that perfectly. So that's what we did. We said we, we're going to we're going to have a commercial version. There's going to be three features in it, and we're going to show that those three features can be absolutely mind blowing. Fantastic. So where where to from here? You've raised, uh, you know, I guess in the direction of ten million New Zealand dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got a you know you've got a bit of capacity now to to grow. I mean, it looks like you're doing something that's uh, that's 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 pretty exciting. What's what do you see as the potential uh, for Patena over the years ahead? So we we started out life just as a really simple uh, Docker management UI. So it was a UI with a singular specific function, make Docker the technology easier to use, and that that's what made us successful. But 
it's that would not be successful in the long run. We have to pivot and become far more broad. So we've we've already started the process to become a container native application deployment management tool, regardless of the underlying technology. So we, we want people to to log into Portana in the morning and do everything they need to do to manage their their container based applications through Portana, full stop. So not not a Docker tool or a Kubernetes tool or any any other tool. It's a tool to manage your container-based applications. Now, yes, we will let you manage Docker and Kubernetes and serverless containers and everything else, but for you, the user, it should be irrelevant. If you think about about, about your Tesla, right, you get in the car, you push auto, autopilot, you just expect it to work. You don't know about it. You don't care about auto, how it works. Same with Portana. We want you to, to use Portana, deploy your applications. Should you necessarily need to know how Kubernetes works and all of its architecture? No, not, not relevant. And for, for the mainstream especially, it's less and less and less relevant to understand how this tech works. No, no one cares how the internet works. It just works. Yeah, uh, that's that's good. And look, you're, you're working with a technology that you know, is only going to continue to uh, to become relevant to you know, more and more organisations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you're really you're you're riding uh, a pretty big wave, aren't you? Yeah, we at the moment this this technology, you know, Kubernetes or or Docker or containerization in general, it really is only available to organisations that can afford to spend the money to either get consultants in, get managed service providers in, or train or or recruit very talented individuals who come at a quite quite a high cost that means the barrier to entry is very high so you know our, our goal is to is to take that barrier to entry away to make it far cheaper to get going with this, with this technology so any organization regardless of their size you know if, if you're an organization that's three people why why shouldn't you be able to use this technology why why, why shouldn't you have the same capability to bring a really cool digital initiative to market just because you're three people you, you there shouldn't be a barrier to adopting this tech and that's kind of our goal is, is bring this tech to everybody love it that's great so neil what have what have we missed what should we have covered in terms of uh some of your learning some of the um you know advice you might share to you know others whether they're in a startup or or really in any Business tech, or or otherwise, that you've learnt learnt along the way, that has uh, you know become a you know a, a really valuable part of maybe how you operate now, or how you've got through challenges along the way. I think the only other learning is around the open source um, market. I see too; it has its challenges at times. Um, a lot of people think open source, cool, that's the way I can get free developers to to cut code and, and give me code. That's just not true. In any way, shape, or form, yes, you might get some people out there in your, your your community creating features for you. Almost always, they'll be bug fixing for you, creating net new capability. Not so much fixing a small bug that's annoying for them. Absolutely, but the biggest value from open source we've found so far is feature requests. People telling you, "Hey, this you, I really love what you got. You're missing this feature. I think you should add it." Um, that has been you know, mind blowing, but. For those for those people out there who are looking to have to, to start a company and say open source because I can get free devs, yeah, news <laughs> to you and it's all bad. Yeah, you you are definitely putting in the hard graft building your product. P- people will help you fix bugs in it. They'll they'll tell you what features it's missing. But in regards to helping you build it, yeah, not so much. Yeah, good good advice. Look, it's it's you know great to see uh, Portana you know off to a off to a really uh, good start and you know fascinating to hear about your story. 
and you know, I think for for New Zealand, we we need more potatoes, right? We need we, uh, we need more uh, you know innovative businesses being built here, grown, and especially exciting when we can have. Uh, you know, a good percentage of the people actually based here and contributing back into our into our New Zealand economy, mm. um, and I and I and I guess we um, we should you know expect to hear more stories like this. Where I mean, I I don't know. I'd heard too much about Patena, uh, you know, really, and still, you know, the, the last couple of days, and yep. uh, you know, hearing about your recent fundraising round, and to me, that's just totally fine because. You know the the uh, revenue generating is going to be, you know, probably ninety nine percent, you know, plus outside outside of New Zealand. Um, it's but just all coming the, back to New Zealand economics, yeah, yeah, uh, which is is fantastic. So, um, you know, bring it bring it on. Let's uh, let's keep this stuff coming. Yeah, and I've actually joined the NZ Tech Startups uh, Facebook page, and really you see, you see some really cool. You know, people coming in who've got these great ideas and they're wanting to build startups and you know you see them struggling they're, they're out looking for co-founders and they're out looking for, for developers to help them and you know so some of these stories are amazing and so you, you see what's potentially coming down the track in regards to cool tech and it just it, it blows my mind you know we, we really have a powerhouse here of of intellect that can go and solve real world problems and that's i think back to our, our number eight fencing wire approach to everything there's a problem let's let's solve it and i, th- I think i think we're unique in the world with that Particular you know, modus operandus, right? That's we just we just want to solve a problem and and can find a way. Yeah, Kiwis are very are very good at that, and uh, you know certainly I, I you know I hope as we um, you know develop the the podcast more this year that we're going to be able to get to address some of those different sort of mm-hmm. challenges that you, know, you you come across with uh, with with those that are getting started and at a very important in their journey that people will be able to tap in here and uh, you know and really hear from people that have been through it before and uh, capture more of that learning. So thanks for contributing to that. Yeah, and there is no such thing as good luck. Only only, only hard work. Love it, love it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Neil. Much, right. much appreciated, and uh, thanks everyone for uh, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we will look forward to catching you on the next episode next week. All right. See ya. A special thank you to our partners who make the New Zealand Tech Podcast possible and are proud supporters of the tech and innovation ecosystems here in New Zealand. They are Umbrella Connect, Vocus, Vodafone, Spark, HP and Gorilla Technology. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Thank you.